0: Well, good morning, everyone. That's a whole lot of kids. A whole lot of things going on. It's just wonderful sitting down here in front and watching their expressions on their face, you know, trying to figure out if the music's too loud, if they like the music, what they think of Brian, things like that. It's just, they're just uh, uh, adorable. Well, as you know now, today is Palm Sunday. But what I want you to understand from the standpoint of history, today begins the most important week in the life of the most important person who has ever lived. For the last 2,000 years, millions and millions of Christians all around the world have approached this week with reverence and awe because of the stunning revelation of God's love in the final seven days of Jesus' earthly life. And it starts with what we call the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This event is so important, it's recorded in all four of the Gospels we have in the New Testament, But this morning, what I want to do is I want to unpack it in John's account, the Gospel of John. So grab a Bible, turn on your Bibles, there's Bibles in the racks in front of you, and turn with me to John chapter 12. It's about page 1079 or so, uh, depending on which uh, uh, edition are in the racks, but the Gospel of John and John chapter 12. And we're going to pick it up in verse 12. As we go through this, this is a rather short account of the triumphal entry. I'm going to make some comments as we go to provide some historical context. So, verse 12 the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, this festival, or some of your translations will say feast, is the Passover. And the great crowd are people that are pouring in, Jews that are pouring into Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands, we estimate for the Passover. Uh, what's the Passover? Well, the Passover was a week-long Jewish religious festival to commemorate God's deliverance of Israel from the bondage Israel experienced in Egypt. It was, uh, the Passover is sort of a spiritual 4th of July. Now, think of it that way. Now, this particular Passover while Jesus is there, was electric. It was electric because of Jesus, because of his teachings leading up to this, because of his miracles, including just a couple days earlier, Jesus had raised a dead man to life, a man named Lazarus. So crowds are flocking to Jesus. Many people are believing in Jesus. Everyone is talking about Jesus, uh, tweeting about Jesus. It's the headlines, it's the news. Uh, Jesus is the buzz. But what I want you to understand is the vast majority of these Jews were caught up in a nationalistic or political frenzy because they believed that Jesus was about to ascend the throne And become their political deliverer. A political king. And that he would vanquish the hated Romans that were occupying Israel. So look at what comes next. Let's go on to the first part of the next verse. They took the palm branches and went out to meet him. Now this is what the children uh, just illustrated. This is why we call this Palm Sunday. Now palm branches... 2,000 years ago in Israel were a nationalistic symbol of Israel. So the crowds have these palm branches and in doing so they're affirming that they want Jesus to be Israel's king, the political ruler or deliverer. Now let's look at what they said. They were shouting Hosanna. It's a complicated word to translate it probably means save, save us, save him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now here, the crowds, Jewish crowds would do this, are quoting an Old Testament psalm. This is a quote from Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. Now what in the world is a messianic psalm? It's a psalm that prophesies the coming Messiah. Messiah. As we see here. So this crowd is saying that Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. That Jesus is a long-awaited promised Messiah who would come and make everything right. Now they're thinking again primarily political deliverer. So what's going on here? If you were there, you would realize as the crowd is declaring Jesus to be king, they're openly declaring that Caesar is not. So this becomes a political rally, not just a religious one. And this is an act of defiance, not just an act of worship. Now let's continue. Verse 14 Jesus found a young donkey. And sat on it as is written. And here we have another Old Testament prophecy. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now this is amazing. Because here Jesus intentionally inserts himself as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. That the Messiah would ride on this young uh, donkey a, a, a colt. Verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. That's understatement. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things have been written about him and that these things have been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now this is the story, John's account of the triumphal entry. And what I want you to understand is that here, in the three-year ministry of Jesus, everything changes just like that for Jesus. Why? Because by and large, Jesus had shied away from publicity. And here, he goes public. Here, he intentionally crosses a line. And there's no turning back. Because what Jesus has done is incredibly dangerous. It's treasonous, and he knows it. Now, there are two primary things that emerge from the triumphal entry. Two things I want you to see this morning. Two things that Jesus is declaring unequivocally and publicly. And the first is that he is declaring, I am the king. But not just a political king. Jesus is declaring, the crowd didn't understand this, but Jesus is declaring, I am the one true king. Uh, The good king. I am the promised Messiah, the cosmic Messiah. In, In other words, Jesus is claiming to be God. And it's expressed in the language of royalty here, king. And the crowd doesn't get it. Now, you say, well, how do you know Jesus is claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah King here? Let me mention a couple things real quickly. First of all, notice Jesus doesn't. He does not correct the crowd. Jesus doesn't say, hey, hey, time out. You guys are suffering from a heat stroke. You need some fluids. I'm just a prophet. Uh, You got this wrong. No, 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 no. Jesus, in this very public moment, accepts the acclaim of the crowds. Now, yes, he knows their understanding of him as a Messiah is very superficial, but he accepts it. Uh, Then then second, uh, as I mentioned, uh, with this donkey, he intentionally inserts himself into Old Testament prophecy. Now, that means either this is an act of blasphemy or he is, in fact, the Messiah. We really don't have any options. Then third, look at verse 17. Once Jesus is in Jerusalem, uh, he does not call a press conference and say, hey, you know, the crowd's got it wrong about Lazarus. I really didn't raise him from the dead. You're way overreacting. No, Jesus does just the opposite. He lets the power of that miracle, imagine all these people saw Lazarus, raised from the dead, he lets the power of that miracle point to his deity. He accepts it. But then finally, and this is still on Palm Sunday, if you drop down to verse 23, what does Jesus do? He predicts his death. Coming five days later. He predicts it. He announces it. And then he explains why he's going to die. And then he calls people uh, to f- follow him by dying to themselves. And if you look at verse 27, in a moment, in a moment of amazing candor, uh, uh, Jesus says, my soul is troubled, my soul is tormented. I- illustrating the agony of the cross that's ahead as well as the depths of his love. And then Jesus prays. And then supernaturally, God speaks audibly from heaven. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? And he he spoke in a way that all sorts of people heard. They say it it was an angel. And as, as we see, God said, I have glorified your name and I will glorify it again. Now, Yes, 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 these people were pre-scientific. But they weren't gullible. They were just as skeptical of Jesus as you and I would be, as we are. And the, the disciples, I mean, not only can you not make this kind of stuff up, but the disciples wouldn't have made this up only then to later die for what they knew all along was a lie. No, this is beautiful because what Jesus is doing is tapping into something that's much bigger than just a Jewish hope. It is certainly that. But it's a human hope. It's our deep-seated longing for a good king, a true king that causes his people to prosper. And you say, oh, oh, wait a minute, why why do we have that longing? How do you say that? Well, because at the beginning of creation, God made us as humans to live in submission to him. And that submission uh, was a a beautiful, a perfect thing, just as God is beautiful and, and perfect. So throughout human history, all the legends, say the legends of King Arthur, all the, today, the the celebrity, the hero worship, the superhero uh, movies. You, You look around the world, the willingness of, willingness of one culture after another to tolerate a dictator, and you little girls we just saw lots of them who uh, love playing princess while they're young what is all of that well all of that are, are, are whispers of something deep in our spiritual nature that longs to crown a king a good king that will cause us to prosper But because of the fall, and by the fall I mean what the Bible says, the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden into sin, there is also in the human heart a great distaste, a disdain for a king. We don't want anyone to tell us how to run our lives. We don't want anyone to tell us what what to believe. So the idea of a sovereign God ruling over us has been replaced with a tenacious commitment to a sovereign self. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to believe. And as a result, today, I mean, look at our culture. Sexuality, gender, Morality, family, is whatever you say it is. It's up for grabs. We don't want a king. We want to do it our way. I want you to see these words. Uh, This guy's a Christian social commentator. Look what he says about what's going on in our culture today. Today we believe in nothingness. We believe that anterior prior to our choosing to our wills, there's nothing to guide our wills. So sheer willing, the sovereignty of the individual itself is the ultimate reality. In the vocabulary of sexual preference like that of the pro-choice movement, choosing is the ultimate reality and nothing guides our choosing. Don't you tell me what to choose? What's the basis for your choice? It's whatever I say it is. That's America today. And this is precisely why our culture isn't working. Why there's so much chaos. Why uh, it, it feels like the foundations are collapsing. We don't deny the concept of a king. There's that longing deep inside us but we make ourselves the king or our jobs or our money or our family or our pleasure so the question i want to raise in light of this main message of jesus declaring himself to be the king in palm sunday how do we how do we push back and how do we live counterculturally Or another way to ask it, what does it look like when someone is treating Jesus as king today? Or how do you know you are really treating Jesus as king? Let me give you three ways or really three tests so you can do a little self-assessment. First of all, you trust Jesus in spite of your circumstances or your pain because you know he's in control. You trust him because you know he's in control. In other words, you know he's the king and you're not. Now, did you hear me? Important statement. You understand that he is the king and you're not. Most of us want to be the king of our own lives. And and what this looked like functionally is with Jesus, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you travel through your life, especially in the rough spots, and you say, not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Now let me illustrate this with parenting. Many of us here right now who have had multiple children have had at least one of those children that challenged us, right? Well, don't look so pious. Uh, one child that pushed back, colored outside the lines, uh, One child that thought uh, he or she knew better than mommy or daddy. And defied mommy and daddy. Deceived mommy and daddy. We had a daughter like that. And when she was four, to our utter amazement, she began to routinely cheat at (laughs) Candyland. We had a Candyland crisis in our home uh, she hated to see her older sister win and so she would just take her little deal and move it all across the board and then she'd look around and she was barely four uh, so what do we do as parents well, some advice uh, that I received a, a while ago that's really helpful. It, it's in great moments like that when you can, you know, you get down on your knee and you look your daughter, in this case your daughter, in the eye, and you say, hey, honey, uh, daddy. you know daddy loves you, right? And it, you know daddy would never do anything to hurt you, right? And... um Uh, you know that daddy wants you to obey because that's best for you, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, so when um, we're playing a game like this or uh, when we're not around, here's what I want you to tell yourself. I I I want you to tell yourself that my daddy loves me and my daddy would do nothing to hurt me. And so I'm going to trust my daddy. And I'm going to stop trying to be mommy or daddy. Or deceive mommy or daddy. And apparently it worked. Because now she's an adult and she became a Christian therapist. Divine intervention, by the way. Now there's a point. The point is that God does the same thing with us. You don't like the game. You don't like losing. You don't like what's happened. And in Jesus Christ, God kneels before you and says to you, Trust me, I'm your daddy. And trust me, even if you don't get it, even if you don't like it, even if you don't want it. And my point is you will know you are treating Jesus as king when your contentment is not found in your understanding but in your trust. It's the exact same thing we want with our kids. Second, you'll know you're treating Jesus as king Uh, when you obey him, not your desires, in spite of how strong your desires might be. Now let me talk about narcissism. Researchers are are, are telling us today that increasingly um, we are a culture full of narcissists. And we are raising narcissistic children. And we are raising narcissistic children because we want to give them everything they want. Um, We tell them every time they turn around, that they're superior, and we shield them from natural consequences. And there's a problem with narcissism in the church. In my pastoral experiences, there's a significant problem with narcissism in Christian marriages. So let me explore this. I want to show you uh, a description, definition of narcissism. It's several slides, so hang with me. What is narcissism? Well, the term is used in psychology to describe a preoccupation with self. It's taken from the mythological narcissist who fell in love with his own image and was doomed to die because he couldn't turn away from it. He just kept looking in the lake, the pond. A narcissist displays a high level of selfishness, vanity, and pride. He sees everything from a how-does-this-affect-me perspective. Empathy is impossible, because his only perspective is the one centered on self. Narcissism is a broad spectrum of conditions ranging from normal to pathological. The narcissistic person uses defense mechanisms to idealize self so that he doesn't have to face his own mistakes that would be sin or flaws, deeper the flaw in state. The narcissistic personality disorder outlines a person as haughty, non-empathetic, manipulative, envious, And here's the last. He also possesses a sense of entitlement and grandiosity. Now, some of you are sinking in your chairs. From a biblical perspective, these heart conditions are due to pride, which is sin. The Bible tells us to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. The narcissist routinely disobeys this command. Now, let me press this a little, and then I'll draw a conclusion or two. Let me give you a couple ways you can spot a narcissist. One is a narcissist is a person who is given to image management. They're always managing their image because they're profoundly concerned about what, how other people perceive them, what other people think. A second way to spot a narcissist is a narcissist is usually a person that's always, always talking about themselves, it's a person that finds it very difficult to ask you questions. Uh, third, uh, 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 a narcissist is a, a person who, who usually finds it's very difficult to admit mistakes, failure, blind spots, or sin. And when they do, it's often to manipulate others. Now, I say this because of the Fall, all of us have narcissistic self-centered tendencies but you will know you are moving down the road in terms of treating Jesus as king when you are obeying him and not your desires no matter how strong your desires are when you want his agenda not your agenda when you want his glory and his honor not your own You are not the king. Your agenda is not the king. Your desires are not the king. Palm Sunday means Jesus alone is the king. It's the point. And to the extent you and I submit to Christ's royal rule in our lives, I mean functionally, I mean ground level, you know what will happen? You will become yourself, your best self. But as Jesus said on Palm Sunday, it will cost you everything. You'll have to die to yourself. Or his language is hate yourself. But when he talks about hating yourself, what he's saying is you've got to die to yourself. A third way you can tell you're treating Jesus as king is when you worship. Worship is responding to all God is with all you are. Not part of you, not... An hour here, an hour there. But responding to all God is with all you are all the time. And so we talk about worship in terms of a worship service like this. But the Bible also tells us that worship is a way of life. And what's interesting is as we read the Bible, when God shows up and meets with humans in the Bible the situation immediately becomes one of worship. When the king enters, we bow down. And and we stay down. So with Moses at the burning bush, we take off our sandals. Or or with Isaiah, uh, we say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Or with Peter, we weep. Uh, My point in all this, is that Jesus publicly and unequivocally on Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry declares himself to be the king. And when you trust him, obey him, and worship him, you are moving beyond lip service. Let's be done with lip service. And you're treating him as king. And that's the first thing going on here. And it's amazing way that Jesus starts this incredible week, holy week. Now let me go to the second thing we learned from the triumphal entry. There's a second thing that Jesus is declaring. And that is Jesus is declaring, I am the merciful king who brings peace. And and, and this is just beautiful. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, he isn't entering to execute justice. He's entering to absorb justice. He isn't entering to bring judgment. He's entering to bear judgment by dying on the cross as our substitute to break the back of sin and evil and to bring an end to sin and death forever. Now, how do we know that here? How is that here? Well, that's the point of the donkey. That's the symbolism of the donkey behind the donkey that the crowd, frankly, missed. You see, the donkey is an ancient Near Eastern symbol of peace. It's what kings rode to communicate Uh, justice and, and peace, and Jesus is riding the donkey as a public declaration that this, his first coming, is a mission of peace, and that's the point of this Old Testament prophecy that set it up, that anticipated it, that predicted it. It's also, by the way, in Luke's account, one of the other gospel writers, why Luke tells us that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode weeping. Look at how Luke expresses it in Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, and the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children, the, the, the children within you. Now, when, I, I want you to see this in your mind. Try to get this in your mind. Jesus is riding a donkey And he's weeping as he rides. And there's tens, hundreds of thousands of people all around. And what I want to suggest to you is we have one of the most vivid pictures of Christ's love for humanity in all of the Bible. Right there. Right here. And what Jesus is saying is I am the good king. And I will cause my people to prosper. I will never oppress you. I will never abuse you. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Because I am going into Jerusalem as an act of ultimate mercy to die for you. So we trust, uh, we obey, uh, we worship Jesus because he's the king. But we can come to him. I mean, think about this. Uh, We can be honest with him. We don't have to pretend with Jesus. We don't have to play games. And we can find comfort and acceptance and forgiveness and and, and righteousness in him uh, because he is the merciful king who brings peace. And he's gentle in his mercy, He's forgiving in his grace. He's accepting in his compassion. And all of that is rolled up in this incredible symbolism. Another way to say it is that Jesus cares so much, he weeps. Another way to say it is that no one, no one loves us like Jesus. Now, so how do you know you're living in light of Christ's love, that, that it's taking root, uh, that it's sinking down and impacted, impacting you on the inside. Well, let me give you three tests, three ways uh, for this one. Number one, you are a person that as you travel through life, you discover you have less fear. I did not say you're fearless, but you have less fear. Even Jesus in verse 27 acknowledges that his soul is troubled. Uh, So my point is you are um, boxing, curbing, curbing, um, containing your, your fears because you know fear is not from God. You understand that fear is the parasite that feeds on the host of unbelief. That fear is walking by sight, not by faith. And and fear is succumbing to the lie that you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, that God's not big enough, or um, God doesn't care enough. Fear is the absence of enough. Fearing anything but God is toxic to your soul, and it drains you, it drains you of life. Now hear me in this. The antidote to fear isn't looking within and listening to your feelings, listening to your concerns. Instead, it's talking to yourself with the word of God and and telling yourself that people may reject you, this particular situation may overwhelm you, but... Jesus has me in the palm of his hand. He knows every hair of my head. And if he rode into Jerusalem weeping to die for me, that he really does love me. And he'll get me to the other side. But you understand that he uses difficulty and disappointment to grow you, to change you, to test you. Second, uh, you are growing in hope. If, you, um, if you're living in light of Christ's love, you are growing, you are accelerating in hope. Now all of us, every human is hardwired for hope. Yet most of us are hope-starved, hope-challenged, hope-deficient, hope, hope, hope less but what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is a story of hope. It's about hope lost, hope regained, about where to look for hope, about how to find hope. But hope isn't a thing according to the Bible. It's not a situation. It's not a new set of circumstances. It's a person, and on Palm Sunday, hope rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus is the hope of the world. Now, now circumstances can make your life easier. I get that. And achievements can create uh, temporary satisfaction. Uh, People can love and support you and come alongside you, but none of that can give you life. Life and hope is found at the foot of the Messiah. (laughs) Weeping as he prepares to die for you. And if you lack hope, you don't have a circumstance problem, you have a sight problem. You're missing the Jesus of Palm Sunday, Jesus of the triumphal entry. And growing in hope is a function of, of growing in your understanding of Jesus' mercy. And third, and I'll be done with this, how do I know that I'm uh, really living in light of Christ's love, you know, seven days a week? Well, well you're a person that's experiencing peace. The peace quotient in your life is growing. Recently, one of my daughters, one of my uh, adult daughters who lives in California said, hey, Dad, we're getting bad news, it looks like. It looks like the state of California is gonna take back our, our foster baby, the foster baby they had since he was two days old. They've had for six months, and they hope to adopt. But it looks like the state of California, and the system is overwhelmed in Los Angeles County, It looks like the state of California, Dad, is going to take our our little guy and place him back with the birth mom who on a good day is barely making it. But that's what happens when our social systems get overwhelmed. And so we were talking about this this week, and I said, oh, man, I am so sorry. We all love this guy how are you doing? And she said, well, this is, this is about the hardest thing I've been through, and she's been through some hard things. And she said, but our confidence is in God, and we're getting to hope. We're getting to hope. You see, this peace, this Palm Sunday peace isn't a life without struggle. It's not a life without disappointment. It's, it's not the absence of conflict. It's not the perfect job. It's not the perfect family. It's not the perfect this or that. That doesn't exist. Peace is locking onto Jesus, who loves you so much, he's going to be crucified on Good Friday for you. And peace is staying under the waterfall of Jesus' mercy. So come to Jesus. If you've never come to Jesus, come to him now. If you've done that, maybe you did that as a a child, live in light of the fact that Jesus is the king, but he is a merciful king. And may God, by the Spirit, give you the grace to keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we praise you and we worship you for all you have given us in your Son. And we ask that you would speak to us, that you would use this incredible week to change us. Show us Jesus in ways we've never seen him before. And we pray in his name, amen.